This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Our last sponsor creates survival technology as well as camping and other outdoor gear. Outer Wild's ultimate goal is to provide clean technologies for everyday devices as they are driven to create a more sustainable world. Use the code IS, that's a capital I, capital S, on your next purchase and receive an additional 10% off. So go give their products a look. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. So welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today I am joined by Dr. Stephen Lewandowski, who is a psychologist working in both the United States as well as Australia, and is currently based at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom, where he is the chair of cognitive psychology at the School of Psychological Science. His research, which originally pertained to computer simulations of people's decision-making processes, uh, recently is focused on the public's understanding of science and why people often embrace beliefs that are sharply at odds with scientific evidence. In particular, much of his efforts are focused on the public's perception of the scientific consensus surrounding global warming. Anyway, Stephen, thank you so much for joining. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I recently was introduced to your work probably a few months ago. I found you on Twitter and I've looked through the handbooks that you have made, some of your research publications, and it's all just really fascinating work. But anyway, I just wanted to start off with kind of learning a little bit about your background. So I'm really curious to hear about how it is that you found yourself in science in the first place. In science, well, gosh, uh, to be honest, I don't remember. I was, you know, I wanted to become a scientist when I was a kid. I guess I read some science fiction novel or something when I was 12. And there was a guy in there and the hero had a lab coat and was saving the world because they developed some who knows what? I can't remember. But so I kind of always grew up thinking I would become a scientist. And I was fascinated by people's behavior and how people think. And so it was weirdly never really a conscious decision. I just knew I wanted to study how people think. And so to make a long story short, I became a cognitive scientist and uh, ultimately you know, got my PhD in that and then did work, as you were saying, that was uh, fairly dry and, and uh, well, dry to the public, I guess. I was fascinated by it, you know, writing computer simulations of how people remember things, how memory might work, how decision making might work. That was all, uh, you know, fascinating stuff, but it didn't really have much of an impact. I mean, you know, I was never in the media or on TV or doing podcasts while I was modeling memory. And then what happened was the um, Iraq war in 2003. And I was living in Australia at the time. 
And aside from all the politics and everything, one of the remarkable things that I experienced was that the news invariably every morning would have something in there about weapons of mass destruction having been found in Iraq. And the same afternoon, that was always debunked. And it said, oh, no, 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 that was just a preliminary test. Uh, in actual fact, there weren't any, any chemical weapons. Now, you may recall the background that the, the invasion of Iraq was ostensibly about weapons of mass destruction, in particular chemical weapons. And, um, you know, that were threatening the world and ultimately none were ever found. Now, the, the psychology in this is, is the um, reporting in the morning of a preliminary test finding weapons of mass destruction, followed by a correction just usually a couple hours later. I thought that was fascinating because I was wondering what's going on, you know, what, what does that do to people's memory? And so we ran a study during the uh, Iraq war and um, while it was still ongoing, so before the occupation was, was complete, and we asked people questions about war-related events, some of which had been corrected and other stuff that hadn't been corrected. And what we found was that um, people, some people, not everybody, but some people believed things that they knew to be false which was really interesting. And we also found a lot of people who thought that weapons of mass destruction had been discovered in Iraq, even though that there was no evidence for that. And it turned out to make it, it's a fairly complicated story, but, but basically what we discovered is that the thing that mattered was people's skepticism. People who were skeptical about the motives underlying the war were far better able uh, to differentiate truth from falsehood. And they also didn't fall for this idea that they were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So that was sort of my first brush with misinformation and corrections and discovering um, that, that people just believe stuff that, that is false. And indeed, some people, you know, they told, they told us, I know this is false, but they two minutes later would also tell us that they believed it. So, so that kind of kind of seemingly ironic, strange behavior that got me really fascinated. And that was published in uh, 2005. And that's when I started to become interested in things like false information, why people believe it, uh, skepticism, the role of skepticism in science and how that's different from denial. I mean, people who deny climate change are not skeptics. <laughs> I mean, not at all. They, no, yeah. <laughs> they're exercising what we call motivated cognition, which is to reject evidence um, rather than accepting it. So, so that's what started me. It was just a world event that had psychological implications and a fallout that I found fascinating. That's what set me going. The, uh, what I find particularly fascinating about what you just said is the number of people who will believe things that they know simultaneously are also false. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really, really confused by that. I mean, did you find it that? Is, like isn't a, a, yeah, it just seems so counterintuitive that you would believe something even though you know that it's factually wrong. 
that there's no evidence that it's not even like that you're unsure or anything like that. You know that it's wrong, but you choose to believe it anyway. Yeah, indeed. Uh, now, of course, I said, you know, there's a qualifier here that it's only some people who believe who yeah. do that, not others. And the some people are, uh, as it happens in this study, were Americans, not people from Australia or from Germany, which is where we also ran the study. And so what I think the key thing is, is, is support for the war and um, that people were expressing their support for a position by believing something or expressing belief in that while at the same time uh, knowing that it's false. So depending on how you ask people, you get two different, completely different answers. Now, let me... And this is not the only time that's happened. There was a recent study by um, two colleagues, Schaffner and Lux, who published this, I think, in 2018. Now, they did a very interesting study. They showed people pictures of the inauguration of Donald Trump and of Barack Obama. And they asked people to pick the photo that had more people in it. Now, you may remember that four years ago, plus two days, or actually one day, because it was the day after, after Donald Trump got inaugurated, his press dude, you know, his mouthpiece, uh, claimed that the largest crowd ever had attended Trump's inauguration. Now, that was complete nonsense. It was completely false. I mean, you know, it, it, it was just false. Uh, and in fact, they yeah. created the term alternative facts to explain why they uh, uh, delivered this falsehood. Um, so what this study did was to ask people to pick the picture with the, with the largest number of people. Now, there's no way you can get that wrong. And indeed, people who didn't vote or who voted for Hillary Clinton, their error rate was like 2%. That just means they, you know, their fingers slipped on the mouse or something. You know, it was just a minimal error rate. People who voted for Trump Guess how many people picked the wrong picture? 30%, 40%? Close, close. Highly educated Trump voters picked the 25% of the time. Trump voters with lower education committed fewer errors. They only picked it about 12% of the time. So how do you explain that? How can it be that highly educated people make more mistakes than people with less education in a task where making mistakes is almost impossible? I mean, you cannot get it wrong because there were so many more people at Obama's inauguration. Well, the interpretation that they put out, which I, I agree with, um, I think, is that this is what we call expressive responding. That is, the people who were highly educated and had voted for Donald Trump, they knew that there was a political controversy over this. And they knew that Trump's party line was to say, I've had the biggest inauguration crowd ever. So when they were given these two photos, they chose the one <laughs> that they knew to be Trump's inauguration and that they knew was supposed to be you know, the tribal identification was supposed to be, yeah, he had the biggest crowd. So they, they used the experiment not to answer my question or the experimenter's question, but to express something about their, their view of the world. 
in a task where you really can't, I mean, you know, you cannot make a mistake that often. It's so obvious. Um, so I think that that is not altogether unusual that people will, you know, do something that you just know they can't believe it, but they say they do. And to express political support and that overrides their uh, willingness to be accurate in that situation. Do you think that plays to like going uh, a little bit deeper on the psychology to people's need to identify with like a group? Um, so we're very, you know, we're social animals. We need to belong yeah. to a tribe, so to speak. Um, do you think that there's a component of that? Why these people were like, okay, well, I'm going to believe this falsehood because my tribe, so to speak, believe this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, oh, totally. Absolutely. I, I think that is precisely what's going on. It's, it's, you know, called identity protective cognition, you know, when people's identity is being challenged by reality or by an experimenter or by something, then they will do whatever it takes to, to avoid being challenged. Um, and what is interesting about that is that the triggers for this or the uh, aspects that, that, that are relevant to a person's identity are quite fluid and flexible over time. So let me give you an example from climate change. What most people don't remember, and I, I've almost forgotten, is that not that long ago, maybe 15 years, I'm guessing now, but something like that, climate change was considered to be a problem on both sides of the aisle in the US. There was a bipartisan consensus that something had to be done about climate change. And Joe McCain uh, was a co-sponsor of a bill together with a Democrat that was supposed to deal with climate change. Um, the McCain-Markey bill or something, I can't remember the details now off the top of my head. Well, at that time, public opinion about climate change wasn't that polarized. There was a little bit of polarization. You know, Republicans were always a bit skeptical hesitant to endorse climate science, but you know nothing like it is today where it's become an identification issue for Republicans to deny that climate change exists. You know, if you're a Republican and you say climate change is real, then you're, you're in trouble with your own tribe. Now, what's interesting is that the path from bipartisan agreement, more or less, to this intense polarization that path was driven by the Republican leadership. It wasn't the Republican grassroots who said, oh, let's polarize on this. You know, I want it to be part of my identity that I'm a climate denier. No, that's not what happened. What happened was that the Republican leadership retreated from the issue and ultimately flipped around and took the grassroots with them. And that is when it became an identity issue. Um, and this happens all the time. We have the same here in Britain. You may have heard of this Brexit referendum uh, that we had here four years ago. And, and the UK has now left the European Union with interesting consequences that are counting up every day now. Um, and 
What's interesting is that right now that has become the most polarizing and fraught issue in the country. And people who are remainers, quote unquote, who would have liked to remain versus leavers who wanted to leave the, I mean, the, 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 they are as polarized as Trump supporters and Biden voters, at least, if not worse. Before the referendum in 2014 and 2015, no one in the United Kingdom was concerned about membership in the European Union, with the exception of a few people who were called googly-eyed loons by the prime minister at the time. It was a very, very small minority of googly-eyed loons. Public opinion data show that no one cared about EU membership until five years ago. And then the referendum was called, then the propaganda machine got put into play, then nationalism and tribal identity became a thing um, in the months leading up to the referendum. And now the country is divided far more than you can possibly imagine. I think worse than the United States actually. So these things can change. Tribal identities can be built through leadership or media campaigns, and um, there you are. Then you get these strange, psychologically ironic effects where people believe things they know to be false. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely an interesting recent phenomenon, like the past decade or so, that I've observed this, um, and I think the evidence bears that out as well. Where you have this just in. in the polarization. So you're talking about the polarization uh, between the two tribes, let's let's say, and it it has become worse. Uh, certainly within recent history um, in the United States, perhaps in UK as well, where you have this polarization that is very extreme, and to a point where it's damaging the social fabric at this point. Uh, for example, yeah, for example, here in the United States, uh, I have family and friends whom. I, not that I've distanced myself from, but unfortunately due to interactions, it's kind of like we've just mutually distanced ourselves uh, because of the disagreement over the course of the country and the type of rhetoric that's being used by certain political parties, uh, the anti-science type of rhetoric that has, and philosophy that's been adopted by one particular political party here in the United States. So it is very damaging. And like you said, it can be, it can be moved. So I'm just hoping that the right actors come to power and help to bring, uh, to, to bring the tribes, so to speak, closer together, because it is clearly causing damage to the social fabric yes. in our country. Abs yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, there's a whole literature on polarization and depolarization in, in political science. And, you know, it's, it's non-trivial. It is, it is not easy because of course it feeds on itself. And now for this to be undone, um, what it would take is, uh, well, I mean, it would take a change in leadership and, and a change in the messages that come from the leadership of uh, the Republican party. And um, because I mean, there's evidence statistically if you look at the positions of the parties over time, it is not that there has been a symmetric polarization. No, the Democrats have been middle of the road for the last 
50 years or something. If anything, they've moved to the right slightly since the 1970s. It's the Republican Party that's gone off the scale uh, on their own. Um, so, you know, how do you fix that when, when in fact, you know, the polarization is driven by one side of politics, not the other? It's extremely difficult, although we do know that if there were a change in leadership and a change in rhetoric of the Republican Party, then they could take their followers back with them. You know, I mean, uh, the, the effects of leadership are, are stunning in, in politics and how that affects people's thinking. I mean, uh, there, there is another um, example I like particularly, which is that Republicans four years ago used to dislike a man by the name of Vladimir Putin. In fact, they disliked him more than the Democrats almost. Neither side of politics was particularly favorably inclined towards Vladimir Putin. Now, between 2016 and 2019, the last time I saw the data, the favorability ratings for Vladimir Putin among Republicans have gone up between 20 and 30 percentage points. That much. That much. And uh, when you okay. look at these data, you kind of you kind of scratch your head, you figure, wow, that's pretty amazing. You know, one dude who becomes the Republican leader uh, uh, can can pull, you know, I mean, after decades of the Cold War and the Republicans being the party of national security and the Republicans being, you know, I mean, they're the ones you would have least expected to change their attitudes towards Russia and Putin that much, and yet they have effectively because Donald Trump, you know, thought that Vladimir Putin was his friend uh, or something, whatever. I don't know, but but that is clearly where it came from. So it is amazing what leadership can do. You know, building off that point too. Uh... And I don't really want to go down the route of censorship, but you know, talking about the power of leadership, uh, the falsehoods surrounding uh, the election. So, for example, Donald Trump said for a very long time after the election that the election was stolen from him, that there was mass manipulation, mass fraud, et cetera, and he was spreading most of this via Twitter, his Twitter. And there was, as soon as he was deplatformed recently because of, uh, he, for violation of Twitter's policies or rules, mm. the spread of misinformation or falsehoods, I should say, surrounding election fraud dropped off like something, it was astounding. It was like 70% yes. or something like that. Yeah, 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 from absolutely. From being spread online. So you're talking about one singular person who has a voice on Twitter you know, of Absolutely. course, he's a, he's a president of the United States, so very, very powerful position, uh, yeah. something like 80 million, something like 80 million Twitter followers. But that degree of, you know, he was kind of the sole person spreading that at that point. You're talking about a 70% drop off. It was I know. Just, it is yeah. amazing. Yeah. I changed my background because uh, there is a link there, a short link that um, people may be interested in to a report that I was lead author on for the European Commission just recently, uh, about six months ago or so. And that's where we go into all these issues of, you know, what's the relationship between online technologies and democracy and what does Donald Trump do and, and how can you, you know, 
deal with that without censorship, which, which is a real issue. Um, so I can, I can tell you, well, I can tell you about two things. Number one, um, I also published a paper last year just before the elect, no, actually just after the election, um, where my colleagues and I did a big data text analysis of Donald Trump's tweets and the coverage of the New York Times and ABC headline news in the United States during a period, I think, of two years. And what we were interested in is to see how the media coverage and Donald Trump's tweets interact. And what we found was that whenever the media, New York Times and ABC News, whenever they talked about the Russia Mueller investigation, Donald Trump started tweeting a lot more about anything but that. He started tweeting about jobs, about China, about the economy, about uh, immigration, about all his favorite topics. And statistically, it was a you know, surprisingly large effect. And then the following day, the more Donald Trump tweeted about that stuff, the less the New York Times and ABC News talked about Russia Mueller. So, we can show statistically that the president was able to divert media coverage from a topic that was uncomfortable to him by redirecting attention elsewhere. And, and he knew that. He knew that. And he did it, yeah, he deliberately. Well, that I can't tell you. I mean, you know, did he not? Well, uh, I, I, I certainly imagine that he probably thought oh my God, here's something uncomfortable. Uh, I'll tweet about jobs, you know, because well, that well, was a strong- Well, one, one thing I will give Donald Trump credit for is that he is a master manipulator when it comes oh, to absolutely. media. A absolutely. master manipulator. Yeah, well, we show this quantitatively, statistically at a level of, you know, the coverage yeah. and, and um, whether that's conscious or intentional is something I can't, comment on. You That's know, true. I don't, You'd have to ask him personally. <laughs> but, but, you know, the pattern is pretty striking. And of course, we didn't find it with other topics like Brexit, which are not damaging to Donald Trump. You know, we looked at everything like gardening and football and basketball and skiing, you know, sort of stuff that has nothing to do with politics. And there's zero relationship between New York Times coverage and Donald Trump's tweets and the next day what the New York Times does. It's completely independent events. You know, they just have nothing to do with each other. But for Russia, Mueller, boom, there is this very strong relationship uh, between coverage and his tweets. And then a weaker relationship, but still statistically significant between the diversion and the reduced coverage the next day. So um that establishes the power the agenda setting power of a single person on twitter on social media and that's after decades of political scientists saying well actually it's the media who set the political agenda well not anymore um it is now or has been in that case demonstrably has been the president through his tweets so, and the second thing that's in that report that I wanted to mention is how do you deal with that without censorship? And that, of course, is a, you know, it's a massive uh, uh, problem. Now, I think, or we think, the authors of this report, that the most important point 
is to step away uh, from what's going on and to analyze the contingencies of the economy online. What's the political economy? What's the actual economy online? And then you recognize that the only thing that matters online is attention. You live in an attention economy. The only reason Facebook exists is to keep you on Facebook so they can show you ads, which they sell to their advertisers. Now, anything that'll keep you on the platform is what the platform will do. On YouTube, you know, they'll run the next video after you finish the one you just watched without you asking. Why? Because that means they can feed you more ads. They get more of your attention. That's, now, their, infinite, that's their infinite scroll. And the infinite scroll, like you see on Facebook, exactly. YouTube does it with the exactly. right into the next video. Yeah. Exactly. And unless you actively inhibit that, yeah. you will get suckered in. You'll spend hours watching cat videos or whatever it is they show you. <laughs> well, that would be harmless enough. But of course, <laughs> they're, they're, they're likely to show you right-wing extremist videos because that's another problem that the recommender systems are sucking people into extreme political opinions online. Um, so, but the bottom line is it's an attention economy. Now, it would be miraculous if an economy that was designed to optimize attention would also optimize quality of information. It'd be miraculous. And of course, that's not what's happened because quality of information and attention grabbing information are very often different, right? I mean, attention yeah. grabbing doesn't have to be false, but you know, it's probably false because if it weren't false, it probably wouldn't grab that much attention. If you think about it, I mean, one of the things about yeah. fake news is that it's new because <laughs> they made it up, right? Well, if it's new, it attracts attention. So it's going to be favored in the attention economy by the algorithms because they recognize, aha, here's something new. That's going to grab people's attention. I can sell them more through our ads. And so we have to, you know, once you know that, once you understand that, then of course the tools uh, become apparent because then it, it, you know, it becomes an issue of, regulating or redesigning the algorithms of um, you know changing the incentive structure of the attention economy of interfering in the business model changing the business model uh, and the moment you do that you don't have to censor anything because i think if we fix the underlying contingencies of the online economy the whole disinformation problem uh, uh, could disappear because if it's no longer in, in your interest to make stuff up, then people will stop doing it. But right now it's in everybody's interest to disseminate false information because it attracts more attention. And that is the problem we have to get around. Yeah, it's, um, it's baked into the business model. Uh, Basically, not, yeah. not by I mean, it's not that they, you know, they don't get up in the morning and say, oh, we're gonna make money out of fake news. It's not like that. It is simply a necessary consequence of human attention, how human attention works. Uh, so it's a psychological issue. 
what people tend to attend to and the fact that that is the currency of the online business model. And the moment you understand that, then at least you can, you can think of ways in which that might change. Uh, I mean, you know, we, that's a totally separate conversation, but the psychology of attention in conjunction with the recognition that there is an attention economy sort of tells, gives us levers that we can talk about how we might change things. Yeah, and I think that it definitely has to come from regulation uh, or outside pressure of some variety because, you know, talking about attention being the, the, the currency. So again, maybe, you know, Facebook, Twitter, these other social media platforms don't wake up every morning and say, hey, I'm going to spread, a, I, I want to spread a bunch of disinformation to people. Um, however, the business model of maximizing profits and the way that they do that is to grab your attention as much as possible. And the primary way that they are doing that uh, due to whatever the algorithms churn out is through FUD, so fear, uncertainty, doubt through misinformation, disinformation, et cetera. So I don't see self-regulation coming from the industry itself. Um, so there has to be a lot of outside pressure. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I, uh, and, and that's okay. So, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't scare me. I, I think um, because at the moment, what's basically happening is that the social media platforms are having a monopoly, virtual monopoly over the information diet of most of the Western world. You know, and that's like a dozen people in Silicon Valley who are accountable to no one other than their shareholders. I think that's crazy. If you think about yeah. it, yeah, it's, no, it it's just <laughs> deep crazy. And no one would have designed the world that way. I mean, if, if people had sat down in Congress or whatever in the 1970s to design the future of the internet, not knowing what an internet even is, right? But if somebody had sort of thought about how can we build a world in the future that's really, really bad and anti-democratic, well, then they might've come up with what we have, but no one in their right mind would have approved of these developments back then. It's, it's because the technology was there, it evolved, People had ideas, all of a sudden they were making money. It kind of worked. It was kind of exciting and new, you know. And, and it, so it just evolved based on contingencies that now have created this crisis. Um, and now we have to deal with it. And now we're beginning to recognize how big the problem is. But along the way, you know, uh, uh, I think every step of the way was just a natural evolution in a, in a free market economy where people were making the buck, you know, doing the usual thing, inventing something. And, um, but the unintended consequences are severe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, have you ever seen the Netflix documentary Social Dilemma or heard of it? Oh, certainly heard of it. Uh, yeah. Yes. No, I haven't no, seen I, it. Yeah. If, for anyone who's listening or watching, I, I highly recommend that. It is just fantastic. Uh, it really goes into all of the nitty gritty details about how social media started off as this kind of mission for good, connecting people. And then through the ad driven business model, it has just kind of evolved in this, into this chimera that you know, polarizes people. It feeds them nonsense daily just in order to 
well, to, to sell you things, essentially. They want to put you, yeah, you put, you, put you in a bubble uh, yeah. because once you're in a bubble, seeing information that you're, that you agree with, you become more relaxed and more open to perhaps clicking on that ad and making a purchase. So it's all just tailored to getting you to buy things from their platform, yeah. uh, but it's clearly causing damage to society's social fabric. And it's, you know, it's very evident here in the United States. It's playing out elsewhere throughout the world. Um, I know that it was instrumental in Brexit, um, so yes. and other things going uh, again throughout the world. But yeah, it's it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. I categor categorically agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the good thing is, this is another paper that I'm working on right now that's sort of in the pipeline and it's going to come out fairly soon. Um, the good thing is that the public is actually on board with this. We did a survey in the US, the UK and Germany, um, about a thousand people in each country. I mean, you know, a large representative survey. And we asked people their opinions about privacy issues. So specifically, we asked them about how acceptable it would be to customize political messages or recommendations for a restaurant or you know, recommendations for the next movie and so on. And we also asked people about the data collection underlying that, how much they think it's acceptable to collect data to enable this customization and what sort of data they, they would allow or they would be comfortable with uh, um, the companies, the platforms collecting. And what's very interesting is, first of all, uh, the three countries are pretty similar. US is a lot more relaxed about privacy, less concerned than Europeans, but the pattern is very similar. Um, people are very concerned about political customization. They do not want political micro-targeting. They do not want to have political messages that are addressed to them based on their personal data. Um, in Germany, it's a complete no-no. In the UK, people are very much opposed. In the US, it's a little, you know, as I said, they're more relaxed about it. But the pattern is very clear. And what's most important to my mind is that there's no political polarization on that. Republicans and Democrats alike do not want, or, or at least to some extent do not want to receive political messages based on their personal characteristics. They also don't like it if data are being used to infer, let's say their sexual orientation and or other personal, very personal attributes. People don't like that. So I think from a pragmatic political point of view, there, there's an opportunity here for uh, bipartisan um, efforts to, to redress this problem. And uh, of course, one of the problems, as you just mentioned, you know, uh, and, and that's in the Netflix documentary, even though I haven't watched it, I know, I know what's in it uh, from, you know, the, the, what everybody has been saying about it. The problem of, of manipulation and micro-targeting and sort of dark ads, that, that problem also, if you fix that by making it illegal, um, that would do away with a lot of the adverse consequences that we're seeing now because it would restore political debate to daylight.
And that's what a democracy is about, isn't it? It's supposed to be a free marketplace of ideas where people trade ideas. Well, you don't trade ideas if you're manipulating people on Facebook based on their personality. That's not democracy, that is manipulation. Yeah, absolutely. And from what you just said, I am actually very happy to hear that there's bipartisan agreement that you know you have Republicans and Democrats or uh, you know people across political lines willing to come together and say and admitting hey this is a problem let's do something about it so that's the people (laughs) the voters the public yes they're not polarized at the moment now uh that's wonderful let's hope it stays that way yeah absolutely and hopefully you know with the agreement then we can actually move forward with some sort of solution uh coming together to actually fix this whether that be regulation or, or pushing uh, pushing these industries to change through other uh, through other means. I know that uh, Facebook and Twitter implemented the fact checkers after a huge outcry from society. Uh, you had a bunch of advertisers yanking their advertisements, saying, "Hey, we're not going to give you any more money until you do something about this." Yeah. So I'm definitely hoping that these platforms, because you know, as you said earlier, what 12 people roughly, you know, like a dozen people in Silicon Valley are controlling the information stream to billions of people. It's just, and they have, they have, they don't answer to anyone except their shareholders and the public because there's no regulation whatsoever. Um, and when I say the public, I really mean the public having to come together and do some sort of grassroots movement to get anything done. But yeah, there's the, the type of oversight that you would expect for an organization, for organizations that have the amount of influence that they do is just not there. So we'll see what happens moving forward, hopefully, hopefully in the right direction. Yes. Uh, anyway, at this point, I think it'd be fun to, um, to pivot to your work on global warming. So sure. at some point you became interested in global warming, how people, you know, why it is that people embrace false information. Uh, there's something known as inoculation. I'm not sure if you were the developer of that particular technique or if that's something that you just helped to propel more into the mainstream. But I'm curious, how did you become interested in global warming? Uh, well, uh, it, it, it flowed on from the Iraq war uh, okay. because at the time of the, you know, the Iraq war, I knew next to nothing about climate change. In fact, I don't I I don't know. I may not have even heard of the term by then. I don't know. But what I do know is that a couple of years later, there was this uh, climate conference in uh, Copenhagen. I think it was 2007 or eight. I can't remember now. It was a key conference and Obama was there and and it was supposed to kind of kind of, you know, finally get the world to agree on climate change. And Leading up to that, there was this immense outbreak, if you can call it that, of skepticism, so-called, in the Australian media. I was living in Australia at the time. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I should have a look at this because skepticism, based on my results from Iraq, skepticism is a good thing. So maybe these skeptics are onto something. And I checked it out and it took me like, I don't know, five or 10 minutes. And I thought, these guys aren't skeptics. This is ridiculous. These guys, yeah. there's nothing skeptical <laughs> about this. What, what? They call themselves skeptics. And I mean, it, it honestly, if you know anything about skepticism, it's, it takes minutes to see through the specious arguments, incoherent nonsense that these people are fabricating. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, this isn't skepticism. What is it? 
and 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 then I discovered the literature on science denial, which exists or had existed for a while, um, and and then it became abundantly clear that the people who oppose climate science and and climate or don't accept climate change and don't want to deal with it are politically motivated operatives. I mean, the ones that are creating the talking points are are. You know, they're just your your shill that you can hire on a street corner. You pay them enough money, they're going to make stuff up for you, and that's who they are. Um, and and you know, we know who they are. We also know that they used to do this for the tobacco industry, and then they did it for the fossil fuel industry, and now their latest industrial pursuit is COVID. It's the same people again who are denying everything about COVID. You know, whatever it is you can deny, they'll deny it. Um, it's the same people, same uh, ideological infrastructure that's underlying that. And so I gradually discovered all that and started doing work on it. And the main conclusion in, from that work is that in science denial, what matters, the number one driver is ideology, people's personal worldviews. I can ask people four or five questions about free markets. And if on those questions, they, they score high on free market fundamentalism or whatever you want to call it, you know, the extreme free marketeers, I can be almost certain that they'll deny climate science. I can also be fairly confident they're going to think vaccinations aren't good for you. I can be fairly confident they deny the link between tobacco and lung cancer. I could, you know, I mean, ideology is, is the main driving variable. For, you know, uh, for understandable reasons in, in the case of climate change, because of course, to deal with climate change, you gotta introduce a price on carbon or tax or regulation. And however you do it, <coughs> you have to interfere with business as usual. And, and if you're a libertarian, then that's very challenging. And so rather than accepting the science, you'll just resort to what you call skepticism, but it's actually denial. And you'll just say, oh, it's a hoax. And, and so there is that uh, mechanism at play. Yeah, it's really interesting what you said that you know you could do a basic test on free market you know ask you ask a few simple questions and then from there you can say okay there's a very high likelihood then therefore yes. you're going to be anti-vaccine you're going to be a global warming denialist um, i spent a number of years working in the complementary and alternative medicine community oh yeah and um I was there because I got kind of pushed by a parent who also worked in that space. I didn't really know that it was full of a bunch of fraud at the time and pseudoscience, quackery, et cetera, whatever you'd like to call it. However, I did encounter, and I even embraced a number of conspiracy theories uh, myself. Yeah. And I noticed uh, one of the things when I was involved with that community is that if somebody tended to believe like that vaccines weren't safe, then nothing was off limits. It was, you kind of believed more or less like all the conspiracy theories out there. You didn't, uh, you didn't really pick and choose. It was kind of like everything was just a gigantic conspiracy. We can't yeah. really trust anything yeah. uh, ex except what we do, of course, is fine. Uh, yeah. And yeah. They yeah. could never, yeah, but we never really, <laughs> even working in that, when I worked in that space, you didn't really have any credible scientific evidence when you 
compared it to the full body of evidence. So there was no way, no justification for support of any of your positions other than the invoking some sort of conspiracy theory and then engaging in like magical thinking. And everyone was okay with that. And, you know, at some point I realized that this is just all sure. insane. So. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, no, you're absolutely right. And of course, my work and that of others, I'm not the only one showing this, but, you know, there's a lot of work out there showing that um, people who endorse conspiracy theories are more likely than others to also reject science. And if you think about it, it's not at all surprising, right? I mean, conspiracy theorists confirm hypotheses because they know ahead of time that there is a conspiracy and nothing will convince them otherwise. Whereas scientists test hypotheses, they will look at the world and then try to sort out what hypothesis about the world might be best. So, so the fact that there is a conflict isn't at all surprising. And it is across the board. I mean, I, I have never seen any scientific uh, fact that isn't negatively related to people's endorsement of conspiracy theories. You know, the more people endorse conspiracy theories, the less likely they are to accept science and, and, and the more likely they are to endorse uh, complementary and alternative medicine um, and other pseudosciences and, and, you know, sort of, uh, there's, all, there, there's a whole cluster of attitudes, you know, intuitive thinking and the belief that you can feel truth rather than it being due to evidence, you know, all these things clustered together and they're, they're uh, uh, related to conspiratorial thought. So, um, so that relationship is, is out there. And that is one of the reasons that it's very difficult <clears throat> to uh, deal with climate deniers or vaccine deniers, because if you're inside a conspiracy theory, then any evidence against that will be reinterpreted as evidence for it. I mean, that's a definition almost of a, it's an attribute of a conspiracy theory. So, um, you know, and that makes it extremely difficult to talk to these people. And hence, you mentioned the word inoculation earlier, hence one of the things that my colleagues and I have been doing is, is to kind of ignore the, the hardcore committed people who are deep down the rabbit hole of a conspiracy theory and instead worry about the public at large who might be misled by those conspiracy theorists. And that's where inoculation comes in. And inoculation means, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of a medical uh, vaccination. We teach people techniques um, by which they might be misled. So we're warning people <clears throat> that there, there are, you know, manipulators out there who are trying to, you know, change your thinking. And here is what they do. And whenever you notice anything like that, then watch out. So, so that's sort of, the, in a nutshell, that's what we've been doing. And so we teach people that, uh, for example, what, what the tobacco industry did was to try and undermine the uh, scientific consensus that smoking causes lung cancer. I mean, there's no question that it does. Um, the tobacco industry tried to undermine people's perception of that consensus by creating these fake experts, 
you know, guys in lab coats who were, you know, claiming to be researchers. And they said, no, 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 you know, there's a scientific debate. Uh, it's not at all clear. Um, of course, that was all fake, right? <laughs> These were fake experts. Um, now, it turns out that if you tell people about the tobacco industry, what they used to do, explain that to them, that they then become resistant to similar misinformation that is currently being used uh, against climate science, where, where the same playbook operates. You know, people are pretending that there is no scientific consensus and they have these petitions that are ostensibly signed by dissenting scientists, but it's not, I mean, it's just complete nonsense. It's people just on the internet signing up and claiming to be a scientist. Uh, you know, so, so by just explaining misleading techniques, you can then, with a historical example, we were able to show that we can protect people against being misled by contemporary iterations of the same playbook. That, uh, that in today's world, I could see that being a, you know, a very, very valuable skill. Uh, yes. The, and I do like, I do like the analogy, uh, I really, really like the disease analogy of like misinformation, disinformation, or other types of false information where mm. these are like diseases essentially of information and you're literally giving somebody an inoculation, exposing them to a weakened form of this diseased information. So that way they, no, they're essentially not going to get it when they're exposed to it or they'll get, they, they won't, they, they'll be very weakly influenced by it, let's yeah. say. And that at some point, you know, if you were to inoculate enough members of society, then it wouldn't be able to spread. Uh, because right now, false information online spreads like seven, approximately seven times faster than regular information or something like that. Or maybe that's yeah. um, fake news versus real news or something. Yeah, it's certainly. Something, fa yeah, 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 yeah. It depends a little on on how you measure it and where you look. But yeah, yeah it does certainly spread fast. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just like lightning speed compared to the facts. Sure. And so, but anyway, uh, are you familiar with the concept? I just brought it up the, in, in, in a podcast I did did recently. Um, the concept of uh, nerd immunity. So you know herd immunity, right? So with regular. Oh, I like <laughs> it. No, yeah, I don't. No, it, it, it sounds great. I want to know yeah. what it is. Well, I mean, so the concept of herd immunity uh, from regular like epidemiology, sure. let's say, is you have a certain threshold of people that are inoculated. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore, the spread of disease is something you don't really have to worry about anymore in a community. It's 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 well under control. Yeah. Um, so translating that over to the spread of false information or misinformation or what, whatever uh, misinformation or excuse me, false information, let's say in general. And you're going to use the process of inoculation, um, your process of inoculation. And then at some point there should be a threshold where enough, enough people are oh, inoculated, sure. let's say with a critical thinking skill set or whatever you'd like to call it. Yeah. And therefore that threshold you could call nerd immunity. So it's like the herd immunity equivalent. So I, I thought that, that I like was kind it. of funny. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's good. I, I, yes, of course. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so we need enough nerds. <laughs> to, to guard us against uh, uh, misinformation. Yeah, well, actually talking about, not nerds really, but talking about that, um, there, there is recent evidence that has shown that a um, crowdsourced fact-checking can work uh, extremely well. Um, and 
so you know that that people can contribute to um, fact checking online in, uh, because of this sort of wisdom of the crowds kind of stuff that uh, on average people sort of get things right um, which is sort of encouraging and in fact if you look at wikipedia i think that's a prime example right wikipedia actually works amazingly well even though it's a free-for-all even though you know anybody can go out there and edit it so you would think that maybe gee it's gonna fall over just like like twitter or facebook or something but it doesn't happen and if you look at the technology or the the architecture of wikipedia and other things that work then i'm inclined to say that the crucial factor is moderation you got to have somebody some sort of guiding person an editor of some sort who is a gatekeeper even if it's only light touch but you do need moderation and you have to just throw stuff out that's junk um the moment you throw stuff out that's junk uh the world changes and then things like wikipedia and uh, other collaborative platforms can can become very successful and in fact there's plenty of examples of online deliberation of, of political decisions like in taiwan for example they have a thing called v taiwan which i think is virtual taiwan and what it is is a national conversation online uh, that allows people to, to contribute to political decisions and you know there's a literature on this and there's a history of what they've done and it it, it looks very positive and some communities in Europe, some large cities like Madrid, for example, have now introduced a similar sort of citizen platform to make decisions about city politics. And uh, it works uh, surprisingly well, you know, and people, it doesn't blow up into polarization. It stays at the level of conversation and problem solving and and trying to come to a solution for a problem. And, and wherever you look, the reason is that the architecture involves some sort of moderation or an analog to that, rather than a free for all where, where you know, the trolls can just come and hijack everything by insulting everybody. And, and then all the same people say, well, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't need this. Yeah. Um, so, Again, there are technological solutions and architectures that can overcome the problems we're having now with a relatively light touch. I wouldn't call moderation censorship. I mean, some people may say it is, but I personally don't. Uh, you know, keeping the kooks out is not censorship. That's just, you know. Yeah, you wanna, you wanna, it, it would be similar to, let's say, I don't know, if you have a data set and you clearly have extreme outliers that don't, that don't contribute constructively to the overall data set. And sometimes you have to trim that data away. Uh, so for example, you know, if you have an, an open source platform such as this, you know, Wikipedia, and you have the outlier or these individuals who have just extreme views, which is clearly unreasonable, that unfortunately you might just have to trim them and hopefully they get the message if they are trimmed that, hey, maybe my views are just too extreme and you know, I'll nudge myself closer towards reality or something of that nature. Mm. But yeah. uh, 
anyway, that is encouraging. But Stephen, so it's been a fantastic conversation. For those who are tuning in, where exactly can they find out more about you? You have a website, you have wonderful uh, handbooks that you have created. So for example, the most recent being uh, the debunking handbook, the 2020 edition, which your concept of inoculation is described in more detail. Well, it's actually not the most recent handbook. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, No, we published another one just earlier this month. It's called the COVID-19 vaccination handbook. Oh, wonderful. Okay. It is addressing the um, all the psychology, behavioral science, and a lot of medical stuff surrounding the vaccine. And it's available at sks.to. That's the, the brief URL slash C19 Vax. And just like all the other handbooks, it's freely available. And um, it comes with an underlying wiki, a whole encyclopedia of information about the vaccine that is constantly being updated by a team of now, it's like 60 people at the moment who are volunteering for this. So it's a massive effort. Um, and But with editors who are you know, enforcing quality, and it's all scientists and students, senior students or students under supervision who are updating the information. Well, that's fantastic. Okay, so yeah, so the the COVID the COVID nineteen vaccination handbook, which is definitely needed because you know that the anti vaccination slash anti science crowd is is out in force now with the vaccinations Indeed. now on market. Uh, and then you also yeah you have the other wonderful handbooks as well. There's one about global warming. Uh, you have one, I believe, also about conspiracy theories, and then again, the debunking handbook, yeah, which is fantastic. I've read, I've read that a few times. That I started <laughs> out with. Yeah, there you are. Uh, and again, I know we didn't go into too much detail about the inoculation technique, but for those who are interested, it's in that particular handbook. Uh, and the debunking, indeed. Yes, absolutely. And then... So you also have, you have a Twitter. Is that your, your most active social media? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter at stworg, S-T-W-O-R-G. Long story. Uh, <laughs> but that's me. And okay. um, I'm, I'm out there on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I'm spending too much time on Twitter. But it's rewarding because it's amazing how much you can actually learn on Twitter and how much science is out there if you... Uh, you know, if you follow the right people and ignore the trolls. Yeah, absolutely. Plus you can have a large, a larger impact as well. So depending on, you know, the type of material that you're able to create and, you know, the people you're able to interact with, you know, who knows, sometimes tweets can just go viral and all of a sudden you're impacting a lot more people than you ever thought you could, particularly, you know, if you're regularly publishing in journals, which is for a select few individuals you know, highly, highly specialized within a c- certain niche, but now you're able to connect with the public. So yeah. Indeed. And, yes. yeah. and I just put my handle and a link to a portal to all our handbooks into the chat. So maybe you can add that to the. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so for, yeah, the, everything will be included in the show notes, all of the links and all of that to your right. handbooks as well as your Twitter. But anyway, uh, for those of you that have tuned in to listen to Stephen and I, Stephen and I's conversation, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's definitely been a enlightening conversation, tons of great material. As you know, there's lots of false information out there, unfortunately, these days, but there's plenty of resources available to help you work through it, skills that you can develop. So for example, Stephen's 
the inoculation technique, which has its roots in uh, philosophy, logic. So we talk about that quite a bit with intelligent speculation and the critical thinking aspect of it. Uh, and then of course, the COVID-19 vaccination handbook, definitely check that out uh, because the amount of misinformation, the disinformation surrounding that right now is, is just Concerning. huge. Yeah, it, it's just gigantic. So please make sure to check that out because we definitely need to try to get as many members of the public vaccinated as quickly as possible. It's going to be a huge task and any sort of false information surrounding it is just going to hinder this. So definitely make sure to check that out. Tons of great material on the way. Make sure to hit that like button, leave us a review. We always wanna hear your feedback. And again, thank you so much for tuning in and take care. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care. Ciao.